The Pinball Network is online. Launching Pinball Innovators and Makers Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Pinball Podcast focused on the innovators and makers who are crafting homebrew, custom, and retheme pinball machines, the technology that makes these personal projects possible, and the companies helping with these journeys. Custom pinballs are a deeply personal and technically challenging undertaking, requiring time, money, knowledge, and most importantly, the desire to make it happen. I'm Dan Rosenstein, your host. Join me and let's go under the play field and see what's needed to make a custom pinball possible. For episode 15, we have Ian Harrower, also known as Gamma Goat on Discord. Ian has taken the maker-to-market pinball journey through software in the P3 platform. Welcome, Ian. It's awesome to have you on the show. Why don't we start with your pinball origin story? Yeah, pinball origin story. So I've told this on like probably several podcasts now. I don't know if you want the long version or the short version. Um, well, you know, it, I'll, I'll give you the sort of like medium version here. Perfect. It's it's a podcast for makers and innovators. These are our people. So, you know, give, <laughs> yeah. give, 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 give the version that you think would be most interesting to them. Well, my pinball origin story starts with juggling, and that's why it's weird. Um, so in university, I did a lot of juggling. I ran the juggling club at the University of Waterloo. I, I juggled as a kid, um, but I got really into it, uh, much like really into pinball now. Um, did a lot of traveling to sh- conventions, learning new things. You know, it, spent, it occupied a lot of my time. Um, when I started working, keeping up the physical practice of juggling was much more than I had time for. Um, And when we moved into our second office, actually it was our third office, but uh, we got a pinball machine. I'd basically never played pinball before, but we got a Stern Spider-Man brand new in box uh, set up in the machine or in the game room. And I gave it a try. And I found that it it met this thing I was missing from juggling, like this soft focus, this like um, the same types of skills that I had while juggling. I was using in playing pinball, but it also had score and competition and sounds and flashing lights and a whole bunch of rewards for what you're doing. So it sort of like really hooked me at that point. And there's one person in her office who owns machines at home. And, you know, he taught me how to do things that some people would consider questionable, like death saves and bang backs. And I was like, whoa, whoa, okay, now this is a whole new level of thing that's going on here. So I got kind of really, really hooked there. I would say that for the first year, I probably played that machine every day. almost like i would go in on weekends and play that game um and then you know the typical collector journey where uh i I actually remember it's it's really funny nowadays uh considering where the market has gone but i asked like how much does this thing cost when they bought it at work and so it's about four thousand five hundred dollars and i was like wow that's a lot cheaper than i thought it would be i would have thought it would have been more like six thousand six and a half um, so I went out and called up a local distributor and said, uh, what, what machines can I get? And they had this fancy new thing coming out called the wizard of Oz from Jersey deck pinball, which was a lot more than that stern Spider-Man. But I put myself right. on that list for a standard and that was the first machine I got into my home. And then they multiplied like triples. <laughs> and so, uh, by, by the time they were, they were done multiplying, um, how many did you, did you end up with or how many do you have in your collection? How many now? do I have now? That's a good, somewhere around like 18. Oh, wow. um, and okay. depending on what, you, how you count the P3, 
because uh, I have it all. Uh, well, so, I, I I count it as uh, one one game per module is the is well, the way. I'm not it. I'm not including in that count. So <laughs> there, there's another plus six or something like that. Um. So the you you interestingly enough, although I've I, you know I had my first pinball machine since I was I was 13. I really got into collecting. It sounds like right about the same time time you did. It was 20, 2012 for me. 2011, 2012 is when I bought my first my first machine and started restoring it, and then eventually got my my F14 Tomcat. So it's 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 cool to 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 hear somebody else who got in pretty much at the at the same time. Yeah, it was a it was a good time to like big turnaround, big resurgence with like what Stern was doing at that time with things like ACDC, Metallica, um, Star Trek. Like it was really a turning point for Stern machines and with Jersey Jack coming on the scene and starting to really push the envelope. Although like, I'll be the first to remind people that like, uh, you know, there was European companies, like the one that was doing uh, the, uh, the, canasta uh the basketball game they were ahead of jersey jack in demos on a lot of that stuff and that but you know they were first to mass market on a lot of that tech so how did you uh find multimorphic so i remember seeing the p3 at expo i think was my first experience with it it would probably would have been i only went to one expo it was around probably 2016 i'm guessing um and i think i saw it there and i think jerry also had it at replay fx and i played it a few times and i thought this is a really cool piece of technology lexi was fun um it didn't necessarily grab me as like this is uh, revolutionary. This is the game I want to play, um, but it was it was fun, and I took a little while to get used to the screen. I probably had, I know when I talked to Jerry at the time, the feedback I gave him was uh, uh, fairly unique. He said like no one had ever complained about that before, um, which was <laughs> I didn't like the fact that the ball wasn't rolling over the image because the like gap uh, was throwing off my timing. Oh, because I was looking through the clear Lexan and like it, it was hard to judge where the ball was because it wasn't actually rolling on the surface. Um, I'm all, I'm over all that now, but uh, <laughs> that was sort of my initial reaction there. And then I, it, the fact that it had a idea of launching with a development kit such that anyone could program for it and the fact that um, I am not a hardware person. I'm not comfortable wiring my own machine. Um, I'm not going to do that. So this was my, I thought this was a way I could tinker. And then I, in, I think it was probably 2017 at Texas Pinball Festival was when they launched um, the first set of orders. And I went down for that one and they showed Cannon Lagoon and the mini games and had the the first pre-orders for sign up you didn't have to pay at that time but um sign up for the machine and I'm like okay I'm going to get this I'm going to get this and I'm going to uh I'm going to play around with it and develop for it and even if I never do anything else uh it's going to be a cool thing to have in my house for that reason 
Now, um, so that 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 that's a great journey into into how you got exposed to Multimorphic and then ended up or, or, uh, ordering one. Um, are you you know do you have software or programming or computer you know scripting skills um, either professionally or, or otherwise? Like, did, were you trained in computer science or did you did you pick that stuff up all, all you know as as life progressed? Oh yeah, so I am a. Uh... I have an undergraduate in computer science and combinatorics and optimization, a master's in bioinformatics focused on integer uh, linear programming um, in the computer science department and did a couple of years of a PhD. So yes, I'm, I'm trained as a very much a theoretical computer scientist, like actually doing proofs and things like that. And then I uh, went through five years in, or like schooling in a co-op program so like vocational uh working for you know many big software companies like ibm and microsystems some high performance database companies cryptography mobile cryptography company Mm -hmm. um and then graduated after i graduated after i abandoned my phd um i worked for uh 15 years at google okay got it Uh, so so i'm fairly technical Uh, the, the 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 art of programming and software design comes comes pretty naturally to you at this point. Yes. Okay. And so you you didn't you didn't endeavor on the multimorphic P three um, as a way to learn programming. You brought that background to the table, which is which is absolutely awesome. And so um, a, a question for you, you know, even before the 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 P three was was available for for uh, order and it started to be showcased by by by, by Jerry and Multimorphic, the ability to get the P three rock or to get a fast system and bring software skills to the pinball table, if you will, um, was you know was 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 possible. What was the reason that you gravitated to the P three? And its, uh, you know, its capabilities and its SDK compared to, say, buying the P3 Rock and ripping up one of the 18 machines that you have and putting in, um, you know, putting in your own software, if you will, through Mission Pinball or through, a, you know, through through any one of the of the of the frameworks available. Yeah, I think that the main thing was I was buying machines I liked um, that I really couldn't imagine. Um, doing a better job i see like i'm not going to i mean i sold some games that maybe i could have done a better job on because the games didn't have staying power for me but um trying to like it, i it would be fairly yeah, overconfident of me to believe that i could take a game like uh, i don't know even a game like congo and make a better game you know, that's one of the games in my collection. Like, is Congo perfect? No, but <laughs> there's a lot of work to get to something that's anything. Um, and I don't have the strength of belief in that. I think there's also just a, when you get to the point of ignoring the fact that you can put things like LCD displays and things like that, there was a simplicity with this is done in unity there's a lot of tools available um this is a com- this feels like a computer program i can run the simulator i can do things like that the, the, and the, the, this being the multimorphic p3 yes this kit. being yes the multimorphic p3 software development kit um it really it's very fast to get something flipping um that is your own code 
And I wasn't confident of going down the route of buying a P3 rock or a P rock or a fast system and getting there. And I've kind of explored, like I've been on the peripheral of Pindev Slack and reading about the mission Bimbo framework and various other things like that, but I've never really dove into it too deeply. Um, this was just the, like getting the, once I've got my P3, it was like obvious and I like the machine as well. Right. And as more and more came out for it, I sort of fell in love with, the commercial games for the platform. And so it made perfect sense for this to be where I spent my time. So Ian, you know, I'm, I'm asking the question. Um, there's definitely no, no judgment there. I happen to be wired the exact same way as you. I have a computer science undergraduate degree. I have a robotics and controls graduate degree. Um, you know, programming is, is definitely something I'm very comfortable with. Um, although I can do hardware, electronics, control systems, the idea of getting a fast or a P3 rock, although I've investigated it and looked at it, like I, I can't fathom, you know, having the hubris to think that I could take a game that I have, pull the control system out, put a new one in and make the game any better than it, that, than it is. Like the idea of that is very exciting to me, but actually thinking that I could do any better than the games that I have. You know, my my, my collection has a lot of System 11s, a lot of Data East, uh, mid-90s games, a couple WPCs. And so um, it's so, so that's actually like, normally, you know, I, I have you talking to the listener. In this case, you're actually talking to me because I'm I'm a few years behind in your journey. I have a P3. I, one of the reasons I was excited about it was because of the software development kit. I've been looking at that. I've been trying to get, you know, the basics of the, of the of the framework up and running um you know i i agree with you that's a at least for for you know for for the way i'm wired it sounds like the way you're wired it's a really good entry into you know building pinball without building the hardware and electrical parts of pinball to start off with so where did you start in your journey on 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 the software sdk um was it with sample apps and frameworks is that is that the proper proper start yeah like so the their first versions of the SDK, all versions of the SDK have all come with what they call P3 sample app. Um, and P3 sample app is a actually reasonably complex uh, game that has a lot of modes. It has a lot of, it shows you how to use a lot of the features of the platform. It is clearly shares a DNA with Lexi because <laughs> um, they would have been developing Lexi at the time. And, let, let, uh, can you just tell the listener what Lexi is for those? Oh, uh, yeah. So Lexi Lightspeed Escape from Earth was the first module released for the P3. Um, it is a Nordman design, I believe. Yep. Um, it's a Dennis Norman design. And it is, you know, the the mode design of that game is essentially like show off everything that the platform can do. Right. So it's got a series of small little modes in it. And it's like, this one uses the scoop walls. This one uses the, like uh, the infrared tracking. Um, this one uses physical ball locks. You know, there are various things that show off various features of the platform. And the, the P3 sample app, when you read the code, it's like you can tell some of this code was copied <laughs> directly from Lexi and put into uh, the sample app. Um, but the sample app is essentially it start. It's a full game. It's got side target integration. It's got which are done through the infrared grid. Um, but you hit it to collect hamburgers or something like that. Um, it's got in moving in lanes that you can complete 
to get four in lanes to complete the lane mode. And it's got a rotating cube in the center of the playfield, which when you virtually hit it with the ball, it will uh, go off in a random direction and move around. So mm-hmm. you can physically interact with it. Um, I think there's some other, like there's code for a multi-ball, which I don't remember how or if you trigger it because I haven't played the game enough to like get that deep into it. But yeah, it's got code for a multi-ball. It's got ball save. It's got tilt detection. It's got most of what you need for, it is a full game. Um, And it's sort of the starting point for where you can do anything. And from my understanding, at least in the early days, every commercial p3 game also started from branching off of the sample app it it also has a couple other things um the uh setting up different camera views because you've got the multi now you've got the multiple screens you have multiple views into the world of of the digital assets you have so it allows you to set that up super easy through unity and the other thing that i noticed that it also has is drivers for every single one of the modules that have been publicly made available um, which we'll we'll talk about later on. I'll, I've I've got some questions later on, um, but I think those those are two other things. So not only do they uh, d- does multimorphic make it available for what the core system can do, but also, and I've noticed multiple updates to the SDK as new modules came out. They update the the driver for those modules so you can program against them. Yeah, so you can do, like every every one of their games. Final Resistance isn't out yet. Um, from like there is there has not been a SDK launched yet that contains the uh, at least as of the time of this recording um, <laughs> that contains access to the module specific features. But it will come. Um, at so, least they've done it on every other module. Right. Um, how how long do you feel that it took you from starting to explore the the sample app and the framework to really getting proficiency with it, given that you're coming to the table with, you know, many years of, of professional development experience. I think that's a challenging question. I would say, have I is my answer. <laughs> so my path was I started with the sample app and I had an idea for a game and I just wanted to kind of get something out there and my, this this is going to sound uh, stolen from Scott because if you've listened to the interviews with Scott about Final Resistance, I'm about to say the exact same thing he said with Final Resistance, except he actually did it and his game was good. Um, <laughs> but my idea was I wanted to actually strip it down, go back to basics, and say uh, what could I do that was actually take the current modules and reimagine a game as something probably around like 1979. Um, If you were to actually program this for a game that existed in 1979, something something EM or solid state, like I have non-EM features in that game, but static play field with insert lights, um, like the demo I wrote, which that game doesn't have a name. Um, It's called Gamma Goat Sample App. Um, (laughs) So it had... It had bo- it, you collected bonus and it lit up inserts along the playfield. Um, it had it didn't it tried not to use the ramps. I built it on heist. I tried not to use the ramps. Um, I did things like simulate drop targets using the 
right orbit where you can actually grab the ball and drop it into a hole and then kick it out. So I like use the timing so that the first time you hit it, it bounces back really fast. And the next time you hit it, it takes a little longer because you're on the second drop target. And the next time you hit it, it takes a little longer because you're on a third line drop target. So I sort of like tried to simulate inline drops and I don't need interesting spinner mode rule in that game that I liked um, where you, you would hit the spinner and as the spinner spun more and more, it would increase points kind of like uh, Viking, um, if you're familiar with Viking, Very except much. for that um, as you spin it, the spinner would heat up. <laughs> and when it overheated, it would lock itself out and stop scoring points. Oh, um, so, so you kind of had to spin it to keep your point value up, but let it like start to cool down before you hit it again. You couldn't just uh, hit it repeatedly over and over again. Um, so I just sort of explored a bunch of ideas, but it was never really, uh, and it had like fake, uh, fake EM score reels in the back okay. box for scoring. Um, and it was close to a game, but it was never, it was never really something that for anyone but me, it was never going to really like be a commercial release. Sure. It was just learn the framework. Well, look, part, part of, part of doing hobbies and part of doing art is doing it for, for yourself and your close friends and not necessarily to, to, to make money. I don't, I don't do this podcast to, to bring in any money since I, I don't get paid for it. It's all, all, all volunteer. Um, so I, I can, I can definitely appreciate that. And, you know, even, even though we work professionally as, as, as engineers or, or, or developers, it, it, it still is nice to, to do some stuff on your own. So I, I, I completely get that. Uh, uh, something you should know and the, uh, th- this recording is being done after I've actually interviewed Scott Denisi for the 14th episode. So it'll be interesting to see if he does indeed say the, 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 the same thing that you just did um, for, you know, a little, little Easter egg for the, for the listeners. Um, the, the reason you chose not to use the ramps for heist, that was to preserve the nine, you know, ni- late 1970s, early eighties feel. It wasn't yeah. anything technical. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So, so I just, and you can't completely not use the ramps, um, but basically the right, the left ramp on heist, you can make it grab the ball every time. Um, so I made it so that it actually wasn't a ramp. Um, it wouldn't feed back to the flipper. He would shoot that and it would kick it out um, from the right side, like just, or actually probably from the center eject, but, um, yeah, the right ramp on heist, you have to return back to the flipper. You, well, that's kind of a lie. You could pick it up with the crane and put it somewhere else, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, (laughs) Um, and that, that, that crane is unbelievable. Um, so you, you know, I, I really appreciate the, the honesty and the answer and the humor of, you know, have I, have I gotten to proficiency? That was a, that was a very fair point. Um, did there come a point where you started to contribute um, back to the sample app or, you know, started to create your own frameworks? Well, so, yes, I think like you're probably transitioning me into when I started to work on what I call Birdwatcher tutorial. And I think this is really where um, I learned that I didn't know as much as I thought I did. So my, my idea was the sample app is good and the documentation is great. But when I started, I didn't know where to start. Right. Um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to think about my program. I didn't know all of the stuff that you would have to do. So my idea was I'm going to make a game from beginning to end and document the entire process as a open tutorial that anyone can follow. And my goal setting out was, I honestly believe 
that regardless of your programming experience, anyone is capable of making a game for this platform. Um, I now believe wow, that that is a, that is an amazingly and bold statement. Like it's I'm, a very I'm, bold statement. <laughs> I'm I'm so glad to hear that. Like let's let's talk about that. Well, so that and that was what I was setting out to do. I was trying to like and clearly I wrote it. I wrote Birdwatcher tutorial with the audience of not me, not someone who has been like I had never programmed C Sharp before I did this, sure. but. They're all Java-like languages. It's right. all something that you can get your head around. Um, so, and I never used Unity, but it's a there's a lot of resources around using Unity. Yeah. But I do believe that like the actual programming concepts to get something working are something anyone can learn. And you're going to have a tougher time, but you may be better at the art side of things. You may be better at the audio side of things. You may be better at light shows. Um, I think anyone's capable of learning it and getting getting something going. And so this the idea was for this to be you can follow step by step, word for word, my tutorial, and you will have a thing you created at the end. And it will be most of a game. And it's going to be open and anyone can do it. And that's what I set out to do. I think now that... And, Moving forward to well, talk may probably talk a little bit later about the commercial version of Bird Watcher because I, I, in parallel, was also planning to develop something to release myself. I would modify my statement that says anyone can build it, uh, anyone can build a game to being, and it is also a lot of work and really hard and probably harder than you thought it was and more work than you thought it was because both things are true. Anyone can do this, but actually f getting all the details right on a commercial game is actually a lot of work. And I knew that as a professional coder, but we all overestimate our ability to do everything. And I knew how hard all of the people working at Multimorphic and Stern and Jersey Jack and the programmers working on these games, how hard their jobs are. All the interactions, the real-time uh, systems aspect, the things that can go wrong, dealing with all of the faults and errors. Um, weird corner cases and race conditions and timing and some flaky switch activating over here. All of that makes it really hard. And there's a reason there's a lot of bugs in pinball games. Um, so I, I don't know how to, I want to be encouraging and be like, yes, anyone could do this, but also realize to finish is a lot of work. It's it look, it's, it's like many of Scott's games. It's, it's easy to start very difficult to master. Yeah. Um. So, so talk to, you know, tell the listener more about the Birdwatcher tutorial. Um, what were some of the things that you, outside of the end-to-end -end journey, which is super important, what were some of the things that you wanted to demonstrate during, you know, and, and, and I'll, I'll put a, a link to the tutorial in the show notes. Um, it's, a, it's a fantastic tutorial. What, what were some of the things you were trying to accomplish on a, on a micro level, not a, not a macro? Yeah, so... I very much broke it down into just how I thought about the game. Um, so the the very first, once you get through the mechanics of you need to get the SDK, you need to uh, load it, you need to rename your app, you need to do a bunch of stuff like that. It was like, how do I think about what the game can do? Well, step one is you need uh, what they call a home mode in the SDK, sort of like the first, there's a track mode, 
which is going to run before you press the start button. Once you start press the start button, it's going to launch your home mode, and that's going to be the the thing that's going to run your game until all of the balls drain and you go back to attract mode. And so step one is let's start with a blank home mode and let's get it to uh, put something on the screen, get balls into play, count the balls, end the game. And the framework does most of that, but it was like setting up your own scene from scratch, not just copying the one that's there. Um, let's get something to show up. And like my basic home mode, the premise of Birdwatcher tutorial is there is a field, there's some bushes, um, and we'll get to that when we get into the gooey stuff, and birds launch out of them. Um, so you set up your mode, balls launch into play, that's great, it doesn't do anything you want. And then the next step is let's make it actually show something. So step two is kind of like, we'll use cubes. Let's put some cubes in Unity. They're going to represent these bushes and birds are going to launch out of them. Okay, let's make a bird and let's animate a bird flying out of this bush. And I walk through various things, how you add the GUI scenes to do that in Unity. You know, a lot of people like myself had never touched Unity. Mm -hmm. So just being like, you read all of this stuff and it's like, okay, there's all these concepts like prefabs and game objects and we have all of these things and I can mess around with it but walking through like okay here's the step do this do this do this and so i go through adding a adding a scene and then walk through adding a basic game mode which i call ramp mode um the concept being you hit a ramp a bird will spawn um as the basic loop of the game and then walk through like how to just restrict it so that the birds launch into areas that you can actually hit them and various things like that. And then you play the game and it doesn't work. And how do you walk through like the fact that, Oh, I just shot, I was playing this on heist and I shot it into the jail and the ball just disappeared and nothing came out because I didn't write any handlers to deal with that. So let's go fix that and sort of walk through like literally my thought process. It was, more detailed than my thought process but as i said like i learned a lot that i didn't know because when you try to write down and explain something to someone you need to explain you need to understand it better than you did before right. and so it was a learning process for me it took a lot longer but there's been really good feedback from the people who have have gone through the process and read it um, so far yeah and, and and on that note let me let me take the opportunity right now like to thank you because you know, you you didn't just go down this journey for yourself. You actually went down this journey to help others, including myself and other folks on the Discord and, and in the community, and and even future people who are listening to this podcast and and those that 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 it'll it'll excite. So thank you very much for doing that. Like it's it's people like you that really make this community go from you know zero to hero and and really explode. Um and 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 thank you for 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 making the time to do that. Yeah, well, and I. Th I I believe in like everything I'm writing and there's a few libraries and various things like that. I'm releasing under an MIT license. Uh, anyone's welcome to use it. The stuff I'm, the stuff I can release that way, I'm releasing that way. Um, obviously my commercial game is not released that way, but the core of my commercial game, well, okay, there's a lot more to my commercial game, but the, the core of it, a lot of it is here. And I started from this, like I moved this over from my commercial game. So, and, you know, I believe in that open source part of 
things and I hope to rate more libraries and expand on things. And I know other parts of the community, um, you know, whether it's skeleton game or mission pinball framework, you know, there's other areas doing this, but I want the P3 development world to sort of people to contribute back and for the community right. to grow. And, and, and we're starting to see pieces of that as well. Um, as you know, as as more and more people are getting onto the P3 platform, buying it as a not only as a as a game system, but also as a as an SDK. Um, so so a quick question that that's an offshoot of um, the 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 tutorial. Um, you know, with the P3, you've kind of got a choice to make when you're working on a game, and this will be the bridge to to your commercial game. Um, have you you know looking at designing for one specific module or supporting multiple or all the modules or you know doing something like rocks did where you only use the the lower two-thirds of the play field and don't you know don't use any modules what's your perspective on like how how you make that decision so my first attempt at a game like so we talked about the sample app that was done on heist um there was a second app that i wrote which uh, we can talk about or not talk about which is double super double super jackpot oh um, oh, oh we're gonna talk about it we're gonna talk, I don't, we can talk about that later but um that that that's sort of a side thing um then i started down a path of writing a very complicated um roguelike collectible card game uh persistent state kind of slay the spire inspired type game on on heist and that was very much i'm going to use the heist features and it was a very specific game and i'm still working on it um and we can talk about it or not talk about it but there's a lot there and it might take me years if i ever actually finish it so the motivation for Birdwatcher was what's the minimum thing that would be fun that i could release as a commercial game and actually finish in a reasonable timeline and i wanted to make something that was um barnyard like and like I'll, I'll side tangent barnyard is great i when barnyard was announced i thought this is the stupidest thing ever um i thought this was a child's game this would be something it came as a bundle on my game i never thought i'd play it um and which which module is it for for the listener it's for all modules okay. so barnyard works with all games um barnyard the the premise of barnyard is uh it's a timed game the in the morning the sun comes up and animals start moving from one side of the screen to the other side of the screen and you hit them with the ball um the subtlety of the rules is that if you actually make uh, major shots in the game like shoot ramps loops orbits it will increase the spawn rate it'll spawn more animals and that means that there's actually a fair bit of skill to get a high score in barnyard and it turns out barnyard's actually really fun even for uh or maybe even more so for really good pinball players <laughs> So like there's this weird magical give me something to hyper optimize and i will hyper optimize it in my gameplay and barnyard is so simple yet like trying to control the ball in such a way that it returns to your flipper as quickly as possible and you can shoot as many shots per second as you can to spawn as many animals as possible is weirdly fun um anyways that's my side tangent there but i wanted to do something that was a little deeper a little more complicated that was in the same vein as barnyard from an approachability standpoint but sort of barnyard plus so let's talk about the 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 transition of how you took birdwatcher as a tutorial and the design philosophy you had there and actually turned it into a, a production game the process um yeah so the 
I had to think through like what would make this fun. So like you were asking why would why have it on a all all modules? Well, there's you know there's the tutorial reason for having it on all modules, which was I'd like anyone to be able to use it. <laughs> and so if I wrote the tutorial for one module, they need to own it. Right. So it's much better if I wrote the tutorial in such a way that it would run on all modules. But then I also wanted the game to have a little more. It's a simple concept, but I wanted to have some staying power. And my whole thing, my my the reason you're going to want to play this game in my head was uh, like many games, which we will not explicitly call out, you want to collect everything that the game has to offer. And this was a game about taking photographs of birds and you're filling your bird book <laughs> and you're going to want to do that. And my beta testers got really like... <laughs> played really hard and fast to try to fill their book. And my concept there was I want to have there be a reason for you to load this up when you're done playing your P3 main game. So you played a game of heist. Yep. And maybe just a quick game of Birdwatcher. Because you know it's gonna take a couple minutes and maybe I'll see some new birds. And I had this concept that said uh I'll have the frequency of birds be dependent on which module you're playing on. So if you want, if you need to get that Kingfisher, then when you have Lexi Lightspeed in, uh, Lexi Lightspeed takes place in Florida or a Florida-like place. Um, So I chose the belted Kingfisher to represent a bird that would be present in the um, sort of Florida swamp area there. Then you're going to want to play with that module in. And if you want a pigeon, you're going to want to play with heist in. And if you want a uh, dove, which you want to play with CCR in. So this was sort of the premise that I had. And so I started to kind of build out the world, build out the, the collection aspect of it, maintaining things in the player profiles and various other things that didn't, didn't happen in the game. And, that was sort of conceptually the things I had to do. But the real hard part was taking my toy graphics where my bird was three ellipsoids <laughs> and trying to make something that would be interesting visually, rewarding, um, figuring out sound, uh, enhancing my light shows to be more than just like some blinking lights because all of that is what makes pinball interesting. And that's where like, all the detail is. Did in, you like, do that rewarding? Oh, so sorry. Did you do yeah. the, the artwork and the sound yourself or did you solicit help? So the artwork is mostly me. Um, when you look at the artwork of the game, I've like, I put previews on various places, mostly on the discord. Um, when oh, my game is under the review process, when it gets released, there'll be like more details about it. But it's a very low poly style. Um, I did the modeling in Blender. It was completely new to me. I had to learn it. It's not good, but it's interesting. It's a unique style. Um, people seem to like it. I kind of like it. I chose not to animate because I thought animating, they move, but they don't flap their wings because I didn't think I could do it in such a way that uh, I would be happy with it. So I chose to keep them static and I think it works well for the game. Um, I modeled 
like the general environment and did things like that. I did purchase some background 3D -hmm. models. Um, So each of the modules has like, there's a cityscape. Um, My original concept was to try to actually 3D model the playfield module behind so that as you saw the birds flying like on the back box, it would be like you were looking into the module. Um, But I didn't end up, I didn't end up doing that, but like, in in heist module, there's a city in the background. Um, I bought some low poly buildings to build out the city because I didn't feel like like it was really cheap, and it makes much more sense just to pay someone for that than to spend the time doing that. But I wanted to do the birds because that was kind of like the thing. That's and super so, cool. Yeah, so I did that. Um, from a sound design standpoint, much like in the tutorial, um, I used uh, freesound.org. Um, which is a repository of Creative Commons um, sounds. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of the sounds in the game are Creative Commons zero um, sounds. There's one uh, Creative Commons uh, CC by. So there's one sound, which I think it might be the belted Kingfisher call mm-hmm. um, that I have to acknowledge in the credits. Um, and I don't mind. Uh, and there's no reason not to use CC by, um, but I was trying to stick to um, CC zero uh, sounds. So the most of the sounds are just things I found there. Did some like mixing and some some of them I sort of put together and constructed in that. Most of them are the real bird calls of the actual birds. A couple of them are fake because either it doesn't make sense or the calls just, I couldn't get an isolated call that easily. Um, the music in the game I bought. Um, so there's, I'm not going to compose music. Some people could, mm-hmm. um, but I couldn't. So I bought the music. Um, there's two tracks that I, I really like. It's three songs in the game. Uh, there's sort of the attract mode song. There's a main main game loop song and a high, a high score uh, song thing. And I bought those. Um and yeah, so I did, I tried to do everything, but I knew my limitations and gave up when I kind of reached them. And and, and that's a key important point that's actually, um, as, as I've been this podcast, has been a recurring theme with, between pretty much everybody that I've, I've interviewed, um, which is, you know, know your limitations, know where to start and, and, and start there and, and get, get help or, or, you know, uh, purchase or, or get, you know, give somebody else some, some, some chance to, 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 to help out. Um, so let, I actually want to rewind, um, the, the idea, the concept of, of, of bird watching. Um, are you, you know, are you a bird enthusiast? Is this something that you wanted to build a game from, or when you were going down the journey of building the tutorial, like you thought bird watching would be a, a good thing. Let's, let, let's talk about design concept, a, a game concept. Yeah. So, I, so the game concept was like collection. I wanted to collection, um, and I wanted to create, I wanted the player to be able to be themselves. I wanted anyone to feel represented in the game. So, and I wanted the game to be nonviolent. Uh, those were kind of the paths I was going down. Um, it It's kind of weird and random, but I would say like a large part of my inspiration is a British comedy show called The De- Detectorists, um, which is a show about two people who are metal detectors. They're called detectorists. Um, that's what they call themselves in the hobby. Um, 
but a lot of the show is just sort of this really chill folk music while they do uh, large sweeping shots across fields in England um, of these two people just sort of quietly um, looking around. And I'm like, you know, I want to make just a really chill, relaxed experience. I don't want pressure. All the things pinball is, which like excitement and pressure and uh, like getting you in the moment and getting you amped up about what you're going to do. It's like, that's the opposite of what I want to do. I want to just build a cool, chill experience that someone's just going to want to go hang out and play this game. Um, and that was really like bird watching kind of fit that. Like I could, I could envision collection. I could envision this feeling for what I wanted to get. And like, I wouldn't say I'm a bird watcher, but you know, we have a bird feeder in the backyard. I like watch, I like uh, taking photos of them, but it's not like a hobby of mine. Um, so okay that totally makes sense um so moving forward you had some other games and some some concepts um so why don't you tell the listener about about those and specifically you know a lot some of them are non-three ball setups like bird watcher they're not traditional pinball games so talk about the evolution to going to what would be considered not traditional uh, uh games yeah, like Birdwatcher's timed. Um, and I, I think that the plat- the P3 platform lends itself to non-traditional games. Uh, part of it's also cheating because it's just easier. Uh, <laughs> it's actually much easier to write code, the code for a non-three-ball game. Oh, uh, interesting. For, for a single player, writing a single player game uh, that is one ball has fewer chances for yourself to make mistakes. If you write a multiplayer game, you have to state switch between the players and make sure that you're saving all of your states and nothing from one player is polluting another player. Um, and the same with multiple balls. You have to make sure you're resetting the state correctly. There's a lot more work to do there. Well, um, so and, part of it is me cheating. And and interestingly enough, Ian, if you go all the way back to EM machines, the fundamental difference, you know, a wedge head, a two-player game and a four-player game is exactly what you just said. Like they can't easily keep that state. And if they do, it needs a lot of complex machinery. In this case, it's a you know machinery replaced by code. So it's funny you're saying that, you know, whatever 40 years, 50 years later, and it's still kind of the, the same fundamental problem. Yeah. Um, but I also kind of wanted to make experiences that were different. So both of both uh Birdwatcher and the game I call Arena, it's just a working title that starts with an A. Um, because uh, the system manager sorts in alphabetical order. And so it's faster to get to my game if it starts with an A. Um, but it also is kind of a fighting-ish game. So I call it Arena. Um, both of those games were exploring the idea of state that persists across games. Um, and we have this now with Venom um, and various other games on Stern, like uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and various other things with Insider Connected. Um, and But there hadn't really been a lot of exploration of state maintaining and that's what i love in video games like the video games i play i like these sort of level up rogue like repeated experiences and i thought bringing that to pinball was something i wanted to do um so the other game arena i would say is very much a slay the spire light inspired game that was the goal of what i was trying to do and i wanted the main game loop to be nothing like pinball um like you are not uh hitting jackpots and doing things like that the game concept is much like a slate aspire type game you battle an enemy when you complete battling the enemy you get rewards for that you claim those rewards add them to your deck move on to the next enemy and much like 
kind of Sorcerer's Apprentice starts to dip into this area where like dangers affect your health. And if you lose all of your health, you lose your ball. I wanted like the game to just be like your health. You're in this battle. If you lose all of your health, the game is over. Mm-hmm. And we're throwing out the rest of the norms of what you would think of as pinball. And I think that because of the accessibility of the platform to developers and the low cost of entry, you can take these types of risks that you can't take in a traditional pinball release. If Stern was to release a collectible card game roguelike where you had to select a card in your hand and the card in your hand determined which shot was lit and hitting those shots um, played the card and it was a timer and at the end of the round they would not like that would be a flop Mm -hmm. um they cannot or maybe it wouldn't maybe it would be the greatest game they could ever sell (laughs) but they could never take that risk like that is way too much risk to actually produce a physical machine it is not too much risk to produce a software uh add-on game uh with that breaks the mold on some of these things and i think that that is probably why there's also something in the personality of the people who are building this game, these games. Right. But like, if you look at uh, Nick Baldridge's games from For Amusement Only, with Ranger in the Ruins, with Flipper Foxtrot R- Rhythm Explosion, with um, Silver Falls, like these are different, very different, non-traditional concepts. They fit in a traditional pinball game. Um, you know, they have well, Flipper Fo- Foxtrot does not have traditional. Uh, pinball structure. Um, the other games have varying degrees of traditional pinball structure to them, but I think that the platform uh, creates an ability to experiment and an ability to take risk that you can't do anywhere else. I I absolutely agree with you. You you were talking about the the idea of I'm done playing my main game on the main module. Now we're going to go play a couple games on you know Birdwatcher or or, or or another one. That that that's exactly the pattern that happens on on my P3. Um, you know, I'll put I'll put a module in for a couple of days, and I'll play all the games that are exclusive to that. I'll play the the main game. You know, get get you know get as far as I can, and then when I'm kind of done with the game, but not done playing pinball, I'll switch to some of the some of the different games and like. You know, recently Dungeon Door Defender, I think last week or two weeks ago, was released. Um, I I happened to download it the same day that it became available. That was not on purpose. It was a complete accident. I happened to go and I wanted to buy a couple other downloadable games and it was available. I was like, I haven't even heard about this thing. So I downloaded it, then saw the Discord afterwards. Um, and and you know, it's it's a I I thought it's an absolutely amazing um example of bridging physical and digital in in a very unique very immersive and very addictive way um i actually found myself going and playing that over the the core module over the course of the of the next week interestingly enough and so i wanted your take as we bridge this traditional non-traditional and you know like you said the bear the barrier to entry is low and the the ability for you know, for 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 independent developers to to come in and create something non-traditional. How do you see the bridging of physical and digital progressing? Like we're from my perspective, we're still we're still at the infancy. Like we're we're in the V1 style games of the original Nintendo when you know it was it was 10 years before the core capability of that platform was really unlocked. And I kind of feel that's where we are with the P3. And I wanted wanted your perspective about it. 
I mean, there's so there's so much you can do, uh, and it all takes time and coding. Um, like if you look at something like CCR online racing, um, which to be fair, I don't do that much, but it's such a unique and different experience to be playing online multiplayer on my physical pinball machine, um, and it's really fun. It just takes a little more coordination and there aren't a million players like there is on Fortnite. So it's harder to match up in a game, uh, but it's a really neat, really cool experience. There's a ton. I think that as we're seeing within the industry, like this idea of persisting state connecting to the world outside, like I have ideas that I would love to try out of like multimodal stuff. I know like dialed in did the phone based flipper controls, mm -hmm. but like I can, I can imagine a, ideas like um, your friend is in their VR headset and they're driving a little buggy around on your play field surface yeah. and they can see your ball. Now the latency isn't that it would be a little, it would be a bit cheating, but like, I want to try to build something like this where like, they need you to go drop off and press some button on the side target module. And they have to drive their little car over there and press the side target module. And they can look out the window of their car and see this pinball. And that pinball actually represents the one that's really in the machine. And there's absolutely nothing stopping this game from being built. Right. Like you can today, the, P the P3 can call out to a server, send those updates. You could write a VR app that was able to interface and connect to it. And I've written apps on my phone that interface with my P3 demo game um, that have like two-way communication where the ball doing something sends something to my phone and my phone doing something sends something to the machine. You know, these prototypes are all possible. And it's like, there's no limit but your imagination and it's all just code. It's very possible. Um, and I think that the homebrew developers, like we're the ones who can, can, Get th throw all the ideas at the wall and see which ones are actually good ideas. Right. The um my my buddy Dave and I uh, we were traveling with our with our families through New York and Boston, and we spent a bunch of time just talking about. He's a software developer as well. Um, and we we spent a bunch of time talking about like what could it, like like you said what could augmented reality look like what could mixed reality or virtual reality look like if if it's a, a augmented experience with with what's going on in the P3 and bringing other players in um into the experience like I love where you're going with it and and we we should not be slowing down we should be speeding up to bring even as proofs of concepts these things like because each one of us is going to build on top of what the other one did. And eventually, like that, it, it'll 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 create a, uh, a a a virtuous cycle of just better and better and better games coming out of the P three. Um, yeah. So so with with that, um, you know, we you you alluded to double super jackpots earlier. Um, I figured you you know it's 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 an interesting um, experience uh, and, and video that you that you had sent. Why don't Why don't you tell the listener and me about double super? Uh, jackpot how it came to be and, and and what it is yeah so um buffalo pinball uh are twitch streamers uh collective of twitch streamers but nick man uh nick lane and kevin manny are sort of the primary people who started it they were having their an anniversary of their stream and they were running a contest for the for cover songs 
of the theme song for their show, which is Double Super Jackpot. Um, and I decided I would write a complete game that would sing the song <laughs> and submit that as my entry. And so what, what's interesting about this is that it took it took a, probably about 11 hours, which I did like almost straight um, to write it because it was still fairly early on. I could do it a lot faster now. Um, I have a lot more code now that I could swap it into. And it was a smoke and mirrors demo. Um, like it really worked. Like you really, um, if you're familiar with the song, basically this all song like sings out parts of the pinball machine. Um, I want a each, scoop. I want to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I need a ramp. Um, I need a loop. I want targets I can hit. I need the scoop. I need a double super jackpot of my life. And I'm like, okay, I'll just program it so that when I hit that feature in the game, it will play um, that line, um, which is uh, for reasons that is kind of inside baseball. I chose this very death metal type interpolation, which is based on death Laham's, uh this this historic Deathlehem performance at Replay FX, where their lead singer got massively drunk and then projectile vomited off the, the stage, and then <laughs> left, and then like their backup singer came out and started like singing, uh, took over, and so this is sort of like one of these legendary things. So I sort of did it in a Deathlehem style, even though it's not in a Deathlehem style. Um, so I just quickly kind of programmed a game where, as you hit targets, it would play the line about targets, and as you hit a ramp, it would play. The- uh ramp version and then i was like okay i'm just gonna film this and submit this and in what was the most remarkable playing of pinball in my life on the very first take i hit all of the shots that were required (laughs) and uh completed the video and submitted that and won myself a 40 dollar gift coupon to comet pinball i think or something oh no it was titan (laughs) i think it was a titan pinball (laughs) So um, I'm I'm actually a Buffalo pinball fan, and I, I remember when this was going on. So it's it's pretty awesome to hear to hear the inside baseball story. So um, as you know, I I really appreciate your time and and coming on the show. As as we you know wrap up, um, we've we've gone through your journey on on you know homebrew on software on the P3, how you got into pinball. Um, do you you know your journey from from maker to market? Um, what advice do you have for somebody who's trying to get in the hobby or looking at the P3 and they don't know where to start beyond the, you know, the, the great advice that we've already discussed, which is start with what you know, what, what else would you tell them? I would say do it, like just do something, start doing something, make progress. You don't have to do some like great vision of everything. It's actually really rewarding just to, like write something and have it show up on the machine. And that's sort of like a self-fulfilling loop there. Um, so if you've got an idea, just start working on it and and start today. Like once you're done this podcast, go download the SDK and load up the sample app and start doing it. And you don't even need a P3. Uh, you can do it without a P3 or do it in, do it on like fast or on P3 rock or on, like the ones that can replace the Stern machines, but just start because you're every day you're not working on it is another day you're not making progress. The that other is, that that, that <laughs> go is ahead. such good though no, that is that is such good advice. You are you are so spot on. Go 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 ahead go ahead. So the other thing that and like this is what I did with Arena, and it's 
it's seems really weird, but it actually ended up working out is I used to be like really caught up on the, like the art and the assets and various things like this. And then one day I just said, okay, I'm just going to buy this mega pack of 2d heroes. Um, it's 40 bucks. That's expensive, but it's 40 bucks. Um, and then I started playing with it and I started putting it in my game and I made these characters and my game was much more fun having professional high quality images in them for me to play test. It was more fun for me to play in unity. Um, I paid 40 bucks. I paid 40 bucks for a video game. And if I get 10 hours of fun out of that, that's great. I got more than 10 hours of fun playing with this asset, even if I never did anything with it. And so I reached this like conclusion that I shouldn't be afraid of buying stuff, even if I never use it. And actually on the P3 uh, Discord, Michael Ocean, who just released Dungeon Door Defender um, as his own uh, third-party app and is a first-party developer of Weird Al and Final Resistance, he says he, he does he stockpiles assets. When he sees stuff he likes, he just buys it and he thinks maybe I'll use this in the future. And I also have started just like stockpiling assets. Um, I bought a bunch of humble humble bundle assets um, of various types. I have a lot of music. I have a lot of 3D models. I have a lot of 2D models of a lot of sprite stuff. And it is very freeing to just be able to drop something in and play with it and try out an idea and not be like, I've got this idea and now I need to spend 40 hours modeling this character to see if it works. And so I would say, don't be afraid to buy stuff and just stockpile it. Um, yeah. That is really, really, really good advice. And it's, it's, it's really good to hear it from you and that, that you like, you went through that journey as well. Um, listen, Ian, I, I want to thank you on behalf of myself and the listener. Um, it's been great t- talking to you, getting to know you a little bit better, hearing your journey. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. And, you know, I, I can't wait to see to see what you make next. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for listening. And I can't wait to see what you make. <laughs>